This is a HeadGum Podcast. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't know the truth. I don't know the way. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Yeah, but that's all right. Yeah, that's okay. I don't know anything. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover, and first of all, I hope you're doing okay. Uh, We've been in the COVID-19 quarantine for a couple of weeks now. It's very clear we're going to be in it for a lot longer. Uh, And so I hope you're holding up all right. I hope you are staying safe. I hope you're staying socially distanced as much as you can. But I hope that you are able to be with folks that you care about. If not, I hope you're in touch with those folks. Uh, I hope that you are keeping your hands washed. I hope you're tipping your delivery people very, very well. And I hope that you'll keep in touch with me. Drop me a tweet, drop me an email. Uh, let me know how you're doing. And, and let me know if there are any topics that we can cover on this show that would uh, bring comfort to you. Uh, you know, sometimes never sure. Should we be doing more COVID stuff? Should we be doing less COVID stuff? We're trying to have a nice balance on the show. And today I'd like to take a little bit of a break from talking about the COVID stuff directly to talking about something that we were all thinking about quite a lot right before COVID-19 hit our country so hard. I'd like to talk about the upcoming election. Now, when you watch news coverage of this upcoming election, and, you know, Chuck Todd, you know, that guy with the weird haircut on NBC, when he's asking serious questions to another reporter with a better haircut, believe it or not, you're actually watching a political theory at work. It's not just, you know, objective reporter truth. There's a political theory behind the questions that are being asked. See, we have ideas about how elections work. Chuck Todd has ideas about how elections work. Uh, And those ideas guide commentary and campaigns. See, the standard theory of elections in America goes like this. Most voters have already made up their minds. They're in the bag for one party or another. So campaigns should orient themselves to the swing voter, right? You've heard of the swing voter, those voters in the middle who can be persuaded to vote for one party or another. They might lean a little bit Democrat or a little bit Republican, but they can swing one way or the other if they hear just the right messaging and just the right policy proposals. Win the swing and win the election. That's the predominant theory. That's the theory you hear from Chuck Todd and all his friends in the traditional political media. 
And we saw this at play in 2016. We saw this exact theory. Rather than pick a VP to the ideological left of her to appeal to the activist progressive Democratic base, Hillary Clinton picked Tim Kaine. Remember Tim Kaine? He's a nice guy, solid grasp of Spanish, a good dad by all accounts, a safe choice. A choice in part meant to appeal to and not offend voters who couldn't decide between Clinton and Trump. And that choice was received very well by all the people who held that swing voter theory. The New York Times editorial board wrote, quote, Mr. Kaine delivers a potential advantage among moderate swing state voters. Well, we all know how that worked out, right? Hillary Clinton, in fact, lost that election. There were not enough persuadable voters, in fact, to flip it. There were not a bunch of Republican-leaning independents waiting for a moderate sign in the sky to vote Democrat. Tim Kaine, in fact, did not do squat. So the theory of politics used by Clinton, the New York Times, and yeah, probably Chuck Todd, in this case, didn't work. You can't win an election by persuading swing voters, it turns out. So how can you? Well, there's a political scientist, an election forecaster, who is throwing this shitty old theory of elections in the trash and describing how they really work. She contends that a lot of the things we think are important for elections just aren't. Incumbency doesn't matter much, neither does the ideology of a candidate, the news cycle, or even the economy, unless something truly extreme is happening, which... Okay, fine, there is in this case, but the fact remains, all those other markers of who will win and who won't, she contends these do not really matter this much. So, if none of those things matter, what does? According to her, it's just one thing, turnout. In an era of hyperpartisanship where party affiliation is tied up in personal identity, you're not going to win by persuading voters on the fence. There simply aren't enough of them anymore. Even if Chuck Todd did meet one once at a diner in Des Moines, they are a vanishing breed. They are like unto the dodo. So the question is, how do you motivate the rest of the voters? Here, too, following on the work of other political scientists, she differs from the conventional wisdom. Yes, voters today are hyperpartisan, deep in the bag for one party or another, but that's only one part of the dynamic. Stronger than their belief in their own party is their disdain for the other side. This concept is called negative partisanship, and it explains why a presidential campaign seeking common ground and consensus today might be setting itself up for failure. Now, taken together, this is a radical new way to look at elections that has massive implications for this November. And that was before coronavirus hit. Not only might the pandemic change voters' views of the incumbent Donald Trump, positively or negatively, but social distancing rules could affect the very way the election is conducted or drastically suppress turnout. Politics literally are not what they used to be. We need a brand new approach to forecasting elections and to talking about even how to win them. Well, to answer those questions for us today, we have on the show that very same maverick political scientist I referenced earlier in this monologue. I am so excited to have her on the show today. Her name is Rachel Bittekoffer. She's the assistant director of the Waysen Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport University. Please welcome Rachel Bittekoffer. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, you're a, a political scientist and election forecaster, right? Yep, that's correct. How has, so first of all, I just want to ask, how has coronavirus scrambled your, uh, your models or your, the way you think about 
the upcoming election? Yeah, it's a really great question, right? Um, I was working on the post-Democratic primary forecast update for the 2020 uh, presidential forecast and had to put that out. It was due um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, I was working on it through March. So I put it out and I put a, you know, hey, this is this is the world, you know, understanding that the pandemic can scramble things. Um, but, you know, assuming that we have an election and we have robust participation in the fall, this mm. is what will happen. And I'm doing the same thing now with my Congress uh, forecast. That's going to be coming out in a couple of weeks. And I'm on, in progress with that now. And, you know, when I do put that out, I'll talk about, you know, this is what the world would look like. If we have something, you know, close to what we anticipated was going to be somewhere around, you know, between 65 and 70 percent voter turnout in the fall. And do you really think uh, uh, how much do you think voter turnout will be affected by coronavirus? I, mean, I guess that's really hard to predict. It is really hard to predict. I mean, we know I mean, this is what we do know. We know the experts are telling us that. If the virus recedes, it's going to make a second surge, and that surge is going to come in the fall. November mm. is around the time period we'd expect that to come back. So, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's enough that you know we we know we can take actions right now to facilitate voting in the pandemic. Yeah, uh, we know that one political party sees higher participation as. Um, you know, antithetical to the probability of them holding on to Congress and to winning the mm -hmm. presidency. And so they're not keen to make those safeguards and those reforms and to beef up like, um, the uh, type of stuff that would help people cast ballots. So, you know, I don't I, I think I'm pretty bearish that we're going to see a lot of uh, reforms done to, um, you know, facilitate pandemic style voting. Uh, I don't think we'll see in total inaction, but I don't I definitely don't see a universal like vote by mail, full absentee, you know, in 50 states type uh, pandemic voting, you know. Uh, so I think that it's reasonable to assume that we're going to see a reduction in turnout. So as far as election forecasting goes and the way that you think about elections, you're a little bit of a maverick as a political scientist. You have uh, made a name for yourself as disputing a lot of the traditional tenets of how American elections are understood. Can you tell us a little bit of what that old model is and why you dispute it? Yeah. So what I'm, I mean, basically what I'm arguing is we have uh, in political science, I mean, you know, people who are more talented than I am researchers have documented um, polarization, quantitatively documented it in Congress um, and, and uh, many other aspects. And then it took a long time to emerge, but we eventually start to see it and quantitatively be able to demonstrate it in the public. My dissertation does this, some Pew research that they start to do in the late 2000s and, and now in other um, research, we see, start to see the mass public responding to elite polarization and polarizing themselves. And so we know that there's polarization and, and, and yet in terms of, and we've seen, see it do things, right? Like Donald Trump's nomination to the Republican Party and let alone election to the American presidency. Like those are things that a healthy 
democracy should not, especially an American democracy, should not be able to do. And yet, mm. like, even though these things happened, like uh, much of the election analysis and, and um, you know, forecasting world, like it, it did not, it doesn't account for polarization as a, you know, as a game changing variable. It's they just kind kept of going along with the yeah, just normal. Kind of, yes, exactly. Like everything was just normal when clearly it was not right. Uh, clearly there was something had changed dramatically. So, you know, it's not that I'm, um, you know, in, in the world of political science, actually, uh, it, what I'm arguing is not all that radical, <laughs> uh, especially the stuff that I argue about independence. I mean, this is really well documented that, you know, it's not 30 percent of the public that's persuadable and open to evidence and it could be, um, you know, wrestled over from one party to the next of the election. Yeah, the swing voter, the mythical swing voter. Right, right, right. Political science research is, is very, um, you know, conclusively shown that most independents are what we call leaners that leaners behave like uh, soft partisans in their vote choice and their policy preferences. And, you know, this um, part of the electorate that is independent and swingy is much smaller than the way that uh, they're discussed on like a Sunday morning talk show. Um, and then, you know, where my research innovates with swing voters is that I'm saying, look, there's two swings. You've got these pure independents, this, you know, smaller chunk, but still important, um, that are, are preference change voters, though I argue that oh, their preference changes is actually fairly well predictable, that they are stat anti-status quo uh, or what I call change voters. They tend mm. to break against the status quo. Um, so in that regard, like that's a novel argument that I'm making. But the second and more important novelty that I'm arguing about swing voters is that there's two swings. There's their, their preference change and then there's their turnout swing. And that is just as important to explaining why a state like Iowa might have gone for Obama by six points in 2012 and then Donald Trump in 2016 by nine points. So we're talking about, you know, what amounts to a 15 point preference change, right? And yeah. the way like the Chuck Todd theory looks at that change <laughs> is all preference change. And the way I right. look at People it is- People change their minds. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the way that I look at that is, okay, there's preference change there and it's pre it's predominantly driven by these change, you know, pure independent change voters. Uh, some of it is driven by um, the long term coalitional realignment voters that we have like two like big atmospheric realignments going on in the voting coalitions of the parties where and, and we're talking mostly about white voters because minority voters don't vote for Republicans for obvious reasons. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the party's hostility, especially in the modern platform, the last 10 years like a dog whistling really changed to overt racism, right? Um, so, you know, we're talking about white voters and, and white college educated voters are moving towards the Democratic Party. And every four years, they became more likely to vote for Democrats, not necessarily because it's the same people, but um, through generational replacement. Uh, and then white uh, non-college educated voters were moving to the, to the Republican Party. So some of that 15 point swing is that. And then the other part of it is the people who decided in 2016 that they weren't going to vote. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And 2016 actually has a whole different element that we should not neglect to, to cover in this conversation. And that is um, and that explains that 15 percent. 
and and that is the the progressively minded so like not necessarily moderate type people but maybe even extremely liberal people who showed up to vote in a state like Iowa and then cast a vote for for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson or mm-hmm. voted Billy, Bernie Sanders and by doing so, like that took a vote away from Hillary Clinton, right? So, um, you know, we're talking about defection rates in those um, 2016 cycle that were five, six times higher than 2012 and t- 2008 and had absolutely profound impacts on the vote share between Clinton and Trump. So how do you do this research when you're looking at, hey, how do we explain this change in preferences in Iowa, I think you said, right? Right. Uh, how how do you and then you're you're going through and uh, well, allocating all the different uh, types of reasons that has changed. So like not it's actually not very much these swing voters. It's much more a change in turnout. People deciding to stay home. How do you go about finding that out? So, I, you know, it, it, it took me a long time to realize that, like, people were looking at that and they were all saw squares and maybe and a lot of it was just motivated by. Like they didn't want to look closer at it, you know. They mm-hmm. they didn't have um the questions didn't weren't motivating them to look differently at it. And I was seeing a rectangle, right? Um, but yeah, so like when I see a, a state like a cycle move, okay, why why is it you know the economy collapse? You have this big giant wave in two thousand six and two thousand eight, ushering Democrats into control in the post Bush like you know atmosphere, and then all of a sudden you get to twenty ten. And Republicans are picking up 63 seats in the House and the economy yeah, is still basically reversal. on fire. Right. You know, it's like so like you're thinking, what the hell? Like do, the voters have like this massive amnesia as to like, OK, now. OK, mm-hmm. so the there, there's this thing is still this tire fire still burning. It's a tire fire set for the by the Republican Party. And now the elect the electorate's like, hey, you know who we should hire to go put this tire fire out? are the very people that created it, right? <laughs> like, it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, to me, that didn't make sense, but that's what the narrative was according to, like, all the punditry, right? Is like, oh, yeah. you know, Obama got into office and he passed some, you know, super middle-of-the-road healthcare reform package, and now suddenly the electorate's looking to the Republican Party for moderation, right? And I, it just right. didn't, it didn't make sense to me, so I... So I looked at the data and I noticed it was really clear to me right away. I was like, oh, well, yeah, half the electorate, especially the kind of voters that would vote for Democrats, just disappeared. Right. They're like, oh, hey, our guy won. We don't have to show up. Job done. Yeah. You know, like and they like literally left him at the altar, you know, like, hey, thanks for that health health care for reform package, Democrats in Congress, Mm -hmm. you know, hasta la vista. We'll see you later, you know, and and they all got, you know, pushed out of Congress because, you know, the turnout for Democrats is Democratic constituencies anyway, were really terrible in the 2010 midterms. And one after the other, you know, and meanwhile, Republicans were really fired up because, you know, God forbid, uh, uh, a private market based in health insurance uh, package got passed, you know, (laughs) must must fight back, you know. So, uh, um, you know, and so like to me, when an election happens, the first thing I want to know is what percent of the electorate was Republican and what percent of the electorate was Democrat, because that's going to tell me more about the outcome than anything else. 
Like, like even regardless of who those people voted for, like, what is their party affiliation? Oh, yeah. So, like, yeah. like take Iowa, for example, since we're talking about Iowa. And, you know, we don't have a perfect data world. We live in a much better data world this 10 years than even the 10 years previous. And people who, um, you know, do data analysis are surprised when I tell, you know, somebody sometimes will reach out to me and they're like, I can't find, you know, primary polling in 2004. I'm like, that's because that shit didn't exist, dude. Like we live in this like data <laughs> fantasy land now. Um, but you know, so like the exit polling weighting has changed for 2016. They went back and reweighted that data and, you know, looking at co uh, comparing the exit polls now in 2012 and 2016 isn't a perfect science. But like when you look at 2012's data for Iowa, you see right away that Repu Democrats outnumbered Republicans in the electorate and not by just a little, probably by four or five points. Mm. All right. And so there you go. That's how you have Obama carry Iowa by six points. And then when you look at what happened in 2016, Republicans outnumbered Democrats. Uh, it's not by as big of a margin. It's actually by, um, you know, one or two points. But in that scenario, too, we had that high protest balloting. So when you take Ob uh, or Clinton's vote share and Trump's vote share, keep in mind, Trump carried Iowa by a nine point margin. So it's better than what Obama did in, in 2012. But when you add Clinton plus Trump, you actually get to 92 percent. Right? That's not 100. Mm -hmm. And that's weird because that means, you know, that's not what you would typically see in a presidential election. 8% of the vote went somewhere else, right? Mm. And that had a massive impact on that two-party split between Clinton and Trump, those 8%. And not all of it went, um, was, you know, naturally people that would have voted for a Democrat, but a lot of it is because Democrats don't have the ideological discipline that Republicans do. And that's, you know, why in this cycle still, even with negative partisanship and Trump actually being in office, the biggest threat that Democrats face other than the newest threat, which is this um, pandemic curveball on turnout, is the possibility that Bernie voters won't like the not not the extra 15 percent, but the Bernie Bernie base, like the real Bernie or bust people will not vote for Biden. And mm -hmm. that could be enough to help the Republicans win it. And that's just that's turnout, right? Like like that's not, oh, they're going to go right in Bernie Sanders name necessarily. You're just talking about the idea that like that uh, part of the party will be depressed in terms of their it motivation to go hit the polls. No, it will be both. Like some of them may not show up to vote at all. And then some mm -hmm. of them will show up to vote and they'll vote for the Green Party ticket. Or the or they'll write, you know, there might be an independent candidate on their state ballot because the you know ballot rules are very different by state. Some states have a lot of weird candidates that can access the presidential ballot mm -hmm. um, or they might write in literally write in Bernie Sanders name. Right? Yeah. I mean, like so Wisconsin, you know, I mean, all of the Midwestern states, like actually all but two states in 2016 of the swing states. Uh, this is what was, in my opinion, the most decisive factor because, you know, Wisconsin, Clinton and Trump, you know, it was 0.7 of a point that separated them. Um, Wisconsin had 6.32% of its vote go to third party or write-in, okay, 6%. 
and that's a state that was decided by less than one point. Wow. Uh, I know. And and like in 2012, it was one and a half percent that went to third party balloting. So that wow. tells you like how different that is. And we think about Florida 2000 is like this big election where Nader spoiled at things. Nader's 2000 vote was less than two percent. Mm-hmm. All right. Wisconsin, we're talking about six percent. And that's not actually unusual. We could go to Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, North Carolina, any put pretty much any swing state. And it's the same story. We're talking about five, four, six percent defection yeah. rates. Those were absolutely they absolutely crushed Clinton. Well, yeah. let me ask, though, again, just in terms of how you study this. Uh, because one of the things I've been appreciating lately is how weird voters are, right? That like, you know, Ch- the Chuck Todd view, I sort of knew was way off. I think is way off, as far off as can be, because actual voters are just, look, if you meet the average American, the average American is a weird person, you know, like you meet anybody mm-hmm. in America and they've got crazy ideas <laughs> and they're, they're, a, you know, they're a strain, they're, they're emotionally unstable they're they're running around with shoes on their head. Right. Uh, and I'm not talking about like any particular group. I'm talking about everybody is just nuts in this country. Like I uh, uh, saw an interview with a woman. It just stuck out to me. I forget where I saw it. But, um, you know, it was a woman who uh, was a diehard Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg supporter. Um, and she loved Pete Buttigieg. But she said, if the party screws him, I'm going to vote for Trump instead. Um, and you know, the reporter who had read about this was sort of baffled. Like this doesn't fit any model of like a voter type that we're talking about. Right. Or I think about actually just talking to my mom, uh, uh, before the primary, I think they haven't voted yet in her state. And I said, well, who are you going to vote for in the primary? Um, uh, because she typically votes Democrat. And she said, oh, I don't, I'm not registered in the Democratic Party. I don't want to call myself a Democrat. I said, oh, oh, that's interesting. Why? And she says, because of what they did to Bernie last time. And I was like, but if you called yeah. yourself if you called yourself a Democrat, then you could make a different thing happen to Bernie. Like like he's currently running right, if you're right, a fan right. of his. Right. So I was like, that's odd for, well, for a motivated right. Bernie supporter to 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 not be registered to vote in the election because they're mad at the party. So my, my point is, like what, on the individual level, people's motivations are are almost inscrutable sometimes. Um, and so how yes. do you thereby uh, understand them well enough to make a forecast or make a conclusion about how they may vote. So, yeah, like literally in every political science, like intro to American government textbook, there's a chapter on public opinion. Mm -hmm. And it talks about how this phenomena, how at the individual level, all of the Americans that you meet are nutso and they have these crazy (laughs) things. And then it says, but when you aggregate them all together, it cancels out all the noise and somehow it makes coherence. Okay. (laughs) It doesn't really explain how that happens. Right. Um, You know, I will say this, you know, like, you know, at the aggregate level, like most people profess to be ideologically moderate because, you know, if you call somebody and ask them or what, you know, right now it's the cool answers for smart people are to say I'm moderate and I'm independent. Mm -hmm because then you're blameless for the mess, right? So, you know, to admit you're a partisan, you have to admit that you are, you know, in the fray or in the trough, to admit that you're ideological, same story. So there's a incentive to say I'm independent and I'm moderate, right? Uh, The best way to measure that stuff then is to look at people's policy preferences, 
where like, I, so I'm big into measuring the public's opinion implicitly and not explicitly. Uh, and if I had a big national research budget to run national surveys, that's what I'd so be. That, so one that's of the things I'd be. So doing that's at. like rather than looking at oh, I say I'm affiliated with this party, you look at what they actually vote for or what their finer detailed policy preferences are, and then you infer right, right. their. Yeah, yeah. If you want to know what people are thinking, the worst way is to ask. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because like, number one, they'll lie to you. That's one thing. And that's, that's, you know, that's understandable. But number two, mm -hmm. and this is what, what baffles me about Democrats and their so-called strategist, um, is that they lie to themselves, right? Voters lie to themselves. Mm. People lie to themselves all the time. Voter. People don't want to say, you know what's motivating me right now? Donald fucking Trump. Okay. I want to show up and vote him out of office, you know? So if you ask them, hey, voter, what's more important to you? Voting Donald Trump out or, you know, policies and, and a candidate having ideals and having a goal? You know, voters are going to like, voters like to think of themselves as rational, idealistic, you know, higher calling creatures, yeah. right? We don't like to think of ourselves as base, animalistic, revenge-oriented <laughs> assholes, right? You know? <laughs> and, but that's what we so are. So you want to know how... Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, so like, you know, that's why I'm a big fan of behavioral economics. You know, I'm a big fan of, of implicit research. Like, so like, okay, if you want to know what people think and feel, don't let them know you're testing them and ask them indirectly. And you will find out, right? You'll at least see a better window than if you ask them directly. Well, uh, something else one of your earlier answers uh, made me want to ask about was you said that uh, Democrats are less ideologically, what was the word that you put? Uh, so number one, the Democratic coalition is less ideologically homogenous, mm -hmm. right? So like in the Republican Party, the modal ideology is conservatism. Yeah. So like, it, like if you were to ask in a poll and you break down ideology, the, the most common response Republicans are going to give is actually conservative, then moderate. In, a Dem in the Democrats, it's going to be moderate, then liberal, right? Mm. Um, and so, and that's a big difference, right? But Republicans uh, behaviorally, naturally have a um, fall in line mentality, but like this is where I differ again with the Democratic consultant class. Democrats act like it's some kind of genetic thing, right? It's actually a product of of messaging from the top down, from the elites, mm. from the Republican campaign apparatus, from the media apparatuses on the right, because you know it's not like Republicans come out of the womb valuing control of the Supreme Court. Right. <laughs> Somebody's telling them. Like, this is why it matters and this is why you should care about it. And that's why it registers high on their radar. They're being cued into those opinions, right? So like with Democrats, they would understand the importance of falling in line more if somebody was explaining to them, if you don't vote for Biden, this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it will not be, you know, defunding Planned Parenthood or some arcane bullshit like that, right? The way the Republicans would describe it is if you don't vote for Biden, then, you know, you're going to die. 
They're going to take all of your guns away. They're going to kill children, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's a it's a stakes frame. But the argument I've also heard the argument, though, that the Republican Party simply is more homogenous than the Democratic Party, that the Democratic Party is. Uh, uh, and there's a theory uh, that I've uh, I believe we've talked about on this show uh, that the Democratic Party is a more disparate coalition, that it's it's a combination. Right. It's a it's a combination of more disparate groups that actually don't have the same goals. Right. If you're talking about, right. you know, union members, African-Americans, uh, uh, w- w- New Yorkers who work on Wall Street, uh, right, you right, know, right. young, yeah, uh, no, ideologically progressive people of color. Like, is- yeah, yeah. And it's not a theory. I mean, the theory is like the theory comes from Matt Grossman and Dave, Dave, Dave Hopkins. Book, yeah, Dave Hopkins, we've had on the show. Yeah. Politics. Right. And it's a great like articulation of, of what I'm talking about, about this, you know, how these parties are different. They're talking uh, about two types of things. I've touched on the ideological difference. So the Republican Party is homogenous ideologically and ideologically organized. Whereas the Democrats are heterogeneous, more heterogeneous, uh, in terms of their ideological distribution and they're organized around these group interests, right? And the reason why I'm, mm-hmm. I'm recapping that and, and, and jumping here is that you're absolutely right. So Democrats have this major organizational disadvantage insofar as that there's, they're this coalition of group interests. They're not organized around an ideology. Some of that is because for 30 years, the mainstream of the party has been afraid of its own ideology, right? So like the mainstream Mm. moderate messaging machine of the party has been to pretend you're not a member of liberalism, right? (laughs) Right. And so like there's no... Right. There's no like way to rally around the ideology. Now, we're, we're, I mean, you know, I'm arguing the party needs to work on that, right? Like that, you know, the way that moderate messaging happens should be completely revamped and rebranded because right now it's, it comes from a position of a weakness instead of a position of, of strength. And that over 30 years, like if you want to deal with the long-term problems in places where what, you know, white working class voters and rural America and all of those things, you cannot do it unless you deal with this moderate messaging problem. That is at the heart hmm. of all the Democratic Party's problems. Moderate messaging is the, is like the, um, it's, it's the wound, right? It's the main cancer, right? Um, but <laughs> in the other way, And the other way that it hurts them is because if you know you've got this heterogeneous um, coalition, ideologically and practically, because it's not a theory, it's a fact, right? As you pointed out, women, African-Americans, you got the environmental movement, you got the gay rights movement, you got unions, I could go on. So you know, if you go down below 15,000 feet, you're going to have fracturization, right? Of all these different interests. So you have to keep the conversation at 30,000 feet because that's where the commonality can be found, right? Mm. So if you if you go into the weeds, you're going to lose, right? So how do you deal with like the Bernie people and the Biden people and the Buttigieg people and the Klobuchar people and the Harris people is you don't let the conversation get down to that level because once you do, forget about it, right? And the whole, the party's strategy right now completely ignores that reality. So like when I say like they need strategic revamping, what I'm really talking about is like a massive hierarchical, you know, top down 
you know, boot camp revision. I'm talking about like a major, wow. major like thing. Yeah. But that seems to be against what a lot of members of that coalition might want. I mean, for instance, the, uh, you know, the progressive wing of the party, the Bernie folks, they would probably be resistant to a top down anything. Wouldn't you think? I mean, that entire part of the party is grassroots, bottom up people power. No, no, actually, they're very they they love like whenever I talk to progressive groups like they they are very receptive to this because I mean, I'm not talking about, OK, hey, we're going to you know, this is, you know, I'm saying it has to be holistic. Right. Uh-huh. So like you can't right now they suffer from this problem where the other side is highly organized and um, efficient. Right. And the Democratic Party is disorganized and a mess. And what progressives are hungry for and the reason that they're looking to have a revolution is that they they watch a mainstream of the party that they see as shooting itself in the foot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, every election cycle, because they're watching the that mainstream message go out. And that mainstream message is, as I said, like it's basically embarrassed to be a Democrat. Yeah. Right. And 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 like as long and, and because that is the message, it inflames that that progressive base right yeah i mean you can see how that actually adds or causes actually a lot of that tension is avoidable and um you know this is they see they understand like getting the party to see the benefit of getting their candidates you know moderate mainstream candidates to run from strength and not apology they're very hungry to see the party. They, they want to believe in something. They want the party to stand for. Yes. Something. Yeah. Yeah. So like when I go, I mean, I don't make any bones when I go places. I'm very clear, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a moderate, in, you know, independent, basically. <laughs> I just like to win shit. And let me tell you how to do it. Right. Like this is how you win shit. Right. And like, you know, one thing that progressives and, and mainstream Democrats can agree on there's a couple things they can agree on. Number one, they get their ass kicked continually. Okay. And number two, and number two, they don't want to keep getting their asses kicked. Right. So there's, there's (laughs) an increased appetite between these two factions to do better. Right. Right. And what I'm offering is a solution. It's a, it's a solution that both sides can find value to have a little bit of party rigor and discipline that's the word i was searching for earlier discipline and uh right uh forceful forceful like putting forward of ideas that's exactly right because you know ain't nobody got i mean so here's the problem for them like i mean here at the end of the day you know this is this is this is the fact the other side has declared war on the Democratic Party. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, it started off being like, OK, now you're t- you're taking knives to a gunfight. That's that was like 10 years ago. Now, uh, Democrats are taking knives to a tank fight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the Republican Party means to win. And, you know, at this point, like if Democrats don't get their shit together, 
we're not talking about healthcare reform or, you know, this economic reform or student loan thing or that. We're talking about institutional durability, right? Uh, like the long-term plans for the Republican Party are to create citizenship tiers, you know, because how do you maintain power when you have less people uh, you, yeah. um, you know, you, you, there's you, less you Republicans than Democrats in America. Right, 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 right. So like, I mean, you know, I think that there is a recognition, like that's the one thing that the Trump, um, the, is advantage of, of the Trump, of having gone, having to actually go through the Trump presidency. In many ways, it's been a civic renaissance for, Democrats for, you know, progressive Democrats, liberal Democrats, main, you know, mainstreamers, whatever the hell you want to call them. And then like independence, right? Like non-Republican independence is that, you know, hey, the, the American experience is actually fragile, right? Yeah. People have had this mis, mis, um, misplaced belief that our democracy was impenetrable. And now people know that it's fragile. And so, you know, I think that in that regard, people are capable and willing to see change. Now, that doesn't mean everybody, right? So people listening to this, well, I, you know, I argue with these people on Twitter and they're, you know, da, 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 da. And, I, and you know, it could be a Bernie person saying that about a, a Biden person, a Biden person saying that about a Bernie person. Yeah. You know, number one, let me tell you that Twitter is not real life. (laughs) Twitter is not even a close reflection of a distorted perception of real life. Right. Uh, In terms of who's on Twitter and arguing politics on it. Um, But, you know, there, you know, what what I'm saying, what I am saying is like, um, you know, this fall, is it, 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 this is it. Like, this is, this is the, you know, people always say the country's future is on the ballot, right? Well, this is it. Like, this is, this is an all hands on deck moment. And I think that within much of the progressive movement, you know, maybe not the ones you see on these Twitter threads, there's a recognition that, um, you know, and in the mainstream part of the party that that things have to change if they want to survive. Well, I want to ask you more about forecasting, why we do it and how it's done. Uh, and if we even should be doing it, I frankly want to know. But uh, we'll get to a quick break. <laughs> we'll be right back with more Rachel Bittacoffer. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe 
but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, we're back with Rachel Bittacoffer. Uh, This has been fascinating so far. I want to ask you more about forecasting generally uh you're a political scientist but you also like have have made a venture into election forecasting itself i've looked at your most recent forecast you've got uh, uh blue bars and red bars you've got your state projections you're you're doing it in that style um what what is the value of election forecasting you know i had the and of course like i i loved your writing i loved the you know the piece that you wrote uh, but I also so distinctly remember 2016, uh, the shock of 2016, and my feeling of, okay, I had been reading all these forecasts. I've been reading 538 and the New York Times and a bunch of other ones. I had been following along with it. I had felt well informed. I had followed, you know, I, I was like really trying to be a maximally uh, informed news consumer. And then when that happened, I was like, what was the point of this? Like, <laughs> like why, why was... Why are we even doing this? Like, other than satisfying some sort of prurient need to to know an unknowable future, which of course is, uh, uh, you know, is is uh, seductive. What what's the value of doing it? Yeah, it's funny, you know, because like I barely looked at the forecast in twenty sixteen. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's not the, not to say I didn't ever look at crystal ball or the forecast. I, I occasionally would glance at them, but I certainly was not a, a regular reader of 538. And uh, I mean, I have a Ph.D. in American politics, so there's really nothing that I can learn from, you know, the 538 website, you know. Um, so I I didn't really follow it. And then, like, my interest is. Actually, like, like I put out the forecast map and and the per- predictions mostly because people expect me to, you know. But like, mm-hmm. I have almost zero interest in that end of it. What I'm interested in is the theory uh, that drives it and the arguments that I'm making about electoral behavior and if the spitting out of state predictions allows me the avenue to be able to talk to people <laughs> about that. You know, then it, that's good, right? But I see like the forecasting end of stuff is to me like the byproduct. It's not the main event, you know. And it, it gets uh, people. It gets people in the door for your wider argument. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you know, like, and what's the point of it? Well, for me, the point of it was to explain why everything got missed in in twenty sixteen because you can't have this major mass behavior change unaccounted for 
and also, you know, not be appreciating like what hyperpartisanship and polarization is doing to vote choice and voting behavior and then ex- and not and then be surprised when like something gets missed, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, you know, I, I the theory like the theory of for my research, like it begins like I, I never knew I was going to be a, a election forecaster. I wanted to be an election like a political analyst um, from the time that I went to college, let alone to get a Ph.D., I was like, you know, I'm pretty smart. I love politics. I would be great to be like on the radio or on TV talking about politics. I think I'm as smart as these people are. What do I need to do to do that? I need to go get I was, you know, I was a non um, traditional student. I was 24 before I went to college at all. Mm. I was a single mom. I was I went to a community college to start my degree and I was motivated, you know, in part to get to be able to talk about politics. And I just loved it so much. And I wanted to be able to ha- have high level conversations about it. Um, but I didn't know specifically it would be about elections and about election forecasting uh, until very, very recently. And then, um, you know, in 2010 was the first time, like I said, those House elections really that was an interesting that was like where you know if i had to say my my theory has a genesis is definitely there because i remember just being surprised too that like nobody saw it the way i did which was like a story of who didn't vote as much as a story of who did yeah and you know no one ever covered it that way and and you know the 2014 midterms were, were similar for me i you know they i kept saying to my students it was my first year teaching at all I was still a graduate teach, uh, teacher student teacher, you know, hey, you know, this is what the polling says. But, you know, after what happened in 2010, it wouldn't surprise me if they lose all these seats. You know, Like if I and I would tell my students, like if I was them, you know, these seats are basically lost in the South because the South is realigning away. And like in 2014, they had all of these seats that they had to defend. The Democrats did. Obama was president. So you just knew it was going to be a shitty midterm, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was like, you know, this the the assumption that I would make if I was running any one of these campaigns is that we're going to lose. Right. That, you know, no way can we win. So we might as well play like you would play football if it was the fourth quarter and you were down three touchdowns and you knew you were going to lose, which is to say out of the box and, you know, aggressive. Right. And I and everyone was running away from Obamacare and away from Obama. In a time when I I saw turnout as the main, you know, impediment to winning. And I was like, you know, if I was Mary Landrew, I'd bring Barack Obama to Louisiana and be like, you know, pump up African-American turnout as much as I can, because the white people aren't going to vote for her. They're moving to the Republican Party and there's nothing she can do about it, you know? You know what I mean? And like my students thought I was nuts, you know, I'm teaching in the South to University of Georgia. But, you know, sure enough, they all lost except for Shaheen up in New Hampshire. And it was like a nail biter, you know. Um, But, you know, I didn't really articulate the theory clearly, you know, even then. And and then, uh, you know, in 2016, it was I was not telling everybody Trump was going to win by any means. But I uh, I was saying that I expected Clinton to win. Um, based on all the forecast and, um, you know, the blue wall and demographic change. But I did say, you know, the one weakness 
that she has are these pissed off Bernie people because it was very clear from the convention that this that was going to be a problem, you know, and then they never they never did anything to address it. You know, they had Tim Kaine as the running mate and they didn't really do anything to bring these progressives in. And I said to my students, you know, the one weakness is like if all these millennials just, you know, don't show up to vote or vote third party and, and, you know, so like for me, like as soon as the election happened and the dust settled and I saw the defection rates, I was like, well, there it is, you know, like that's what happened. And then instead, like the whole punditry was like, oh, no, it's the white working class. You know, it must have been the white working class. That must be the story. Yep, it's the white working class. And I'm like, you mean that same one that stopped voting for Democrats like 30 years ago and, you know, never is going to vote for them again because <laughs> of cultural and racial resentment and sexism. Yeah. You know, like, everybody went like, off. That and, seems weird. Everybody went off and you read know? Hillbilly Elegy. Nobody read uh, Bernie Voter Elegy. No shit. And so I wrote all, I wrote my book and I, you know, I zeroed in on lower turnout than the Obama years of black voters in key places in Philly and Detroit and Milwaukee and um, defection. And of course, at that time, we knew that the Russians had interfered and they had done so with propaganda, like broadly speaking, and that um, that propaganda had been aimed at Bernie voters and, and, and suppressing black voters. But like that was before that Senate database came out with the ads. I mean, when I saw those ads... Like the book was already out when those ads came out. It was just so affirming because they were literally, you know, that's exactly what those ads were tailored to do. And they did exactly that. Ads like what? Remind me. Well, these are ads, you know, that were micro-targeted on Facebook that played up convincing Bernie people that there was nefarious activity by the D-trip, the DNC, I'm sorry, the DNC, (laughs) to steal the election from Bernie. Mm-hmm. Because there was no election interference in the primary in 2016. And in fact, that primary was less competitive than the 2008 primary that Clinton lost. And in mm-hmm. fact, yes, superdelegates were more decisive in 2008 when they helped Obama beat Clinton than in 2016 when Clinton beat Sanders. It's right? funny how short but our the- memory is for that. I had to remind so many friends I was like, well, because people are like, oh, this this primary is going on forever. And then, of course, it wrapped up pretty quickly. <laughs> but uh, 2008 went on a long time. Like that was yes, really con- much more competitive. And it got really and, bloody. And, and super delegates were extremely important in 2008 because they swing over to Obama in the run up to, to Iowa. And right after that super delegate movement was really important in uh, 2016, the super delegates lined up super heavy with Clinton very early and they never moved. And it's, it's, you know, there was no nefarious activity. Now, was there emails and the Russians strategically released them at peak time to get progressives to defect? Yes, they did. Right. Um, yeah. And it worked. I mean, we we see I mean, just blows my mind that like I'm the only person out here telling people, look at the defection rates. We know the Russians were focused on getting Bernie people to defect. We know defection was five, six times higher. And we know that it was, you know, in states like Wisconsin, decisive. I mean, just it's just bottom mm-hmm. line. It's decisive yet. Like no one talks about it. And you know what? Well, it really 
is important to talk about because the GOP was watching and they're like, oh, shit, that looks like a great plan because they've got a problem with Trump. And this is a problem before the pandemic. It's a problem after he is a plurality winner. Right. He didn't win the electoral yeah. um, you know, popular vote. And the reason is that in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, wherever, other than Iowa and, and, and um, Iowa and Ohio, he didn't crack 50 percent. He won with a plurality because so much protest balloting occurred in those states really? that he could win with 47 percent. Even yeah. in those in right. those states, he won with a plurality. Somehow yes. I didn't realize that. Oh, my gosh, yes. And so, like, when you, for a year and a half now, I've been going around the country briefing groups saying, hey, look, the GOP is going to spend millions of dollars this time on micro-targeting on uh, social media, uh, you know, assuming Sanders is unsuccessful, they're going to target these progressive voters that supported Sanders, and they're going to convince them to either sit out the election or vote third party because they cannot win unless they can get Trump's winning margin margin to be below fifty percent, right? And so, like <laughs> now, we know that you know, of course, Sanders is not going to be the nominee, and that's exactly what you know the GOP winning you know, playbook is, I mean, I, I'm anticipating maybe 20, $25 million investment from uh, Brad Parscale on getting progressives to beat themselves. Yeah. Well, and so, so much of the time you see on Twitter when people are having this conversation uh, that they're blaming each other about it, right? That they're saying, oh, mm -hmm. you know, you Bernie right. voters, you're not going to yeah, vote yeah. for the Democrat, you know, vote blue no matter who. So, yeah. Uh, you're a you're a traitor to the party in some degree, right, or, right. and that's Twitter, right? That's getting very vituperative. Um, but you know, I always think of the the flip side. Uh, this debate's been going on forever. I mean, I remember in 2000 when people were saying that to Nader voters, and I remember Nader voters saying in response, "Well, nobody was bringing. There was no progressive movement in the Democratic Party. There's no place for me in the party. So right, what, what was right. I going to vote for? Like, you need to, you know, I need to be brought into the tent." Those folks were saying. And so, yeah. how do you? How do you see that? Um, yeah, I'm so glad you asked, because in my book, I do not blame the voter. Right. Mm. And in this in my writing and analysis and conversations that I'll be having headed to 2020 to talk about this GOP uh, multi-million dollar targeting uh, propaganda and disinformation campaign that they'll be launching against the progressive left, I will be um, always talking about how it is a it is the responsibility of the campaign mm -hmm. right so in 2016 all of that could have happened if clinton had nominated a progressive or liberal you know i'm not talking about bernie sanders necessarily and i'm talking about somebody who's just not a moderate an olive branch <laughs> right yeah to the progressives she'd probably be sitting in the white house right <laughs> like you know, mm. but you can't just ignore the entire ideological, like, uh, you know, base of your party. You know, you can't. And I would argue also in in today's 2020 Democratic Party, ignore the racial demographically racial base of your party uh, and expect to win an election that's based on turnout. And today's elections based on turnout. The 2016 elections based on turnout, the 2018 elections based on turnout, the 2022 elections going to be based on turnout because you cannot 
win unless your election coalition is larger than theirs. Democrats, it's just bottom line. If you want to win today, tomorrow, in the future, you have to make sure that you're turning out as many young people as possible, as many college-educated women and men as possible, uh, especially whites and and, uh, African-Americans and Latinos. Like, that's how you win. You don't win by the old playbook of finding a pool of white people that vote every election and then wasting 70% of your resources trying to convince them to vote for you. Like, I'm not saying you ignore, <laughs> I'm not saying you just completely ignore the old playbook and the old white people, but you have to turn out that demographically friendly electorate if you want to win. If you do not do that, you will lose. Now, right now, Democrats have an advantage because a lot of that coalition is stimulated, right? But that it could be stimulated more with good campaigning. But yeah, I say like the Democrats are in, were in decent shape before the pandemic. The pandemic is introducing an element of uncertainty that wasn't there before. And I'll be talking a lot about that in the coming months. Yeah. Right. Um, but one way to mitigate turnout uncertainty for Democrats is via you know, putting on the ticket, racial diversity, gender diversity, and ideological diversity, all in one fell swoop, right? So you put a female African-American who is a liberal on the ticket, and you give progressives something to vote for, because Biden isn't it. Yeah. So you <laughs> okay? pick you pick, uh, you pick Stacey Abrams rather than Amy Klobuchar. Yes. Or Kamala Harris, if you're uncomfortable with Abrams. Lack of experience, though, you know, you I know, have to say, I don't know if, what, what I don't know if you've heard what the progressive left says about Kamala Harris. <laughs> I know I have heard, which is, you know, and here again, you know, where reality meets the road. Right. I mean, her Senate record on every vote too. you know, this is every vote that's non-unanimous in the Senate. It's a quantitative record. It's a unbiased record, too. It's um. It's not a selected database. It's every single vote that the Senate has ever taken that's non-unanimous actually has her more liberal than Bernie Sanders. Hmm. Yep. But you know what? The voter doesn't know that. Like your Bernie Sanders people, you'll never convince them of that. So, you know, this idea of, of I have to make the decision based on the assumption I'm going to win the elector election and therefore Harris is better because she has more experience. That's what I would argue is a flawed assumption. You should assume you will not win unless you have, you know, Stacey at Abrams on the ticket, you know, a woman that inspires people to stand in line for hours to hear her speak. Right. That moves people to tears. Right. That's what matters. Charisma. Because Biden, like, you know, I mean, God love the man and his many years of public service isn't particularly charismatic. Yeah. And, you know, he's definitely a better nominee than a self, um, you know, um, avowed socialist because, you know, there's a lot of gray area between, you know, apologetic Democratic model and Bernie Sanders. And I my research suggests that gray area is rich for Democrats to tap into. Like, uh, you know, Katie Porter ran in her swing district in California Mm -hmm. in 2018, you know, as an unapologetic Democrat. She did not run, you know, I'm going to abolish ICE, okay? Because that's not a 
great message for average people. But she ran a, you know, I'm a liberal Democrat, and let me explain to you why liberal economics is better for you, middle class and working class voter, than Republican economics. So, but that sounds like uh, what you just described. That sounds like what Elizabeth Warren was running on. And, you know, uh, she did not fare that well. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, Warren would have fared perfectly fine if Bernie uh, didn't exist. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so so sure. like she'd be she'd have been the progressive nom, you know. Um, it would have been her and the and the and the mainstream candidate. So here, let me explain a really sad truth about American politics. We started off a year and a half ago with two candidates that average people had heard of, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Joe Biden because he spent eight years as vice president. Bernie Sanders, because he was the runner up in the previous year's primary. And lo and behold, what a shock. Who are the two that came out on the other end? Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Right. (laughs) And this continues an almost completely uninterrupted pattern of presidential primaries in which the two people who are well known enter and leave it. Okay. Yeah. Because, like, it's not like the electorate considered. 27 candidates and found some of them lacking and went back to Bernie and Biden. You know, most we are not we are not modal um, examples of the American voter. If you're listening to the show, congratulations, you're in the one percent. Oh, no, no, not the economic one percent. No, no, the politically uh, knowledgeable one percent. And that means that you are extremely atypical in terms of, you know, you're not an average voter. You're not even an above average voter. You are an exceptional voter, right? And so uh, most voters who will cast ballots in the Democratic primary who are themselves actually above average because they're voting in a presidential primary, uh, most voters don't vote in presidential primaries, um, never consider the other candidates because they don't care. Okay, They don't follow <laughs> politics. They never watched one of the debates. They heard, you know, they know who Joe Biden and Bernie right. Sanders is. And it really was only ever between those two. And the decision came down to, am I a moderate or am I a um, yeah. progressive, like, yeah, far if left? You even, and, if you even and know who Steve Buttigieg is, you're a super fan. There's more moderates out there than there are people on the extremes of the bell curve. I mean, that's why the bell curve is shaped that way. And we call them extremes. You know? Yeah. So it's just a matter of mathematics and and name ID. And I know that sounds sad and jaded and depressing, but occasionally uh, a young, charismatic person will come and break that uh, Barack Obama. You know, I mean, he did, mm-hmm. but it takes a real I mean, it takes a special individual who can come out and get it done in one try and can break through that name ID. And you have to keep in mind, what did Barack Obama have to do that? He had Hollywood behind him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and maybe the like best that, media coverage any candidates ever received. Yes, exactly right. I mean, you you it is so hard to get on the radar of the average American very, very, very difficult. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about Bernie Sanders for a second, um, because Bernie Sanders had the name recognition, had this being his second time that he's run. Uh, he ins- and I'll take as a foregone conclusion that he will not be the nominee at this point um, uh, based on how things have been going. Uh, but 
it seemed like his, you know, movement grew uh, in the last four years. Uh, let's just talk about, I'm curious about your view on uh, why he ultimately, uh, you know, his movement did not, uh, you know, transform the electorate the way that he hoped that it would. And what do you think would be the result had he been the nominee? I know that's a little bit hard as a counterfactual because it would require a change in the electorate that did not occur, but go, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, number one, the reason he's not the nominee is because they needed, like, they needed to understand once they vanquished Warren as a viable progressive, like, competitor, and there was a time period where she had uh, not only the the prop the likelihood of, of replacing him as the progressive candidate she did replace him right uh, and yeah. I had anticipated that she would right I said oh Warren is gonna come out and within six months they're gonna transpose and she's gonna be the front runner um, what I didn't anticipate is that she would be dumb enough to uh, drop a detailed 23 trillion that's with a t trillion dollar plan for healthcare reform which if you're ever running for public office um you know free bedekoffer advice don't really yeah. use a 23 trillion dollar plan okay no matter you know if your brand is about having plans or what have you still don't do it it's a very bad idea that made nobody happy. It pissed off both yes, moderates yeah. and progressives. Set because... you up to fail. Yes, it was a very bad decision. I mean, whoever told her to do that really did her a major disservice. And if I had been on her campaign and someone said, Rachel, we want to release a $23 trillion detailed plan, I would have said, no, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> it, was probably this, but, it was probably the same person who told her to take the DNA test. Yeah, it was a very bad idea. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but anyway, so I didn't see them retransposing, but that happened. And actually, once it did, they should have understood like that. At this point, we need to broaden the coalition, right? You have the progressive base. I honestly think there is a problem uh, in within the progressive bubble, it, it, you know, understanding like it is not some uh, elite conspiracy um you know to say like in the data distribution you know like as i was just saying the modal distribution is is moderate right so there's more moderates in the electorate than there are progressives in 2016 when turnout was low ideologues had an advantage because when turnout goes low in a primary it goes low because of moderates not being interested in an mm. environment like we're in now in which um hyper uh, in which uh, negative partisanship is driving democratic mass behavior and they're freaked out about trump who's going to be activated that wasn't before primarily these moderates and and uh more independent minded people and they're going to be looking for a moderate independent minded candidate okay and you know strategically i don't know why Sanders never seemed to ever, you know, um, deviate in his campaign strategy, but he was never going to be able to win without African-American votes. I mean, period. You just can't do it. And I got a lot of flack on Twitter when I would put that analysis out in August and September and October, especially as Bernie was doing better and better in the national polls because he, you know, some poll would come out and everyone would talk about him as the front runner. And I'd come and poop on everyone's party yeah. and say, he's still not going to be the nominee because he can, he's not picking up traction amongst African-Americans. And until and unless you do, 
you will not be the Democratic nominee, you know? Yeah. And sure enough, you know, that's exactly what happened because it's just a mathematical fact. You know, you need you cannot win in a party that, you know, in a primary electorate that's going to be, you know, 40 percent black. You, duh, you know, you need those votes. <laughs> You're not going to get 60 percent of the white vote. So you need you need to whoever yeah. wins that that black coalition. You were saying be, that at the peak when he when he seemed most likely the whole time. Whole wow. time. Yes. No, I mean, it was always and I'm not alone. There was a, other people who understand like the um, Democratic electorate who understood that as well. Yes. Well, uh, so not media pundits, but um, not so many media pundits, but other other uh, political science types. Well, let's just put ourselves in the alternate history where, uh, you know, he won enough states where right now he seemed like the front runner. Let's say that, you know, he he now seemed that he was uh, coasting towards the nomination. Uh, how would you how do you analyze the the uh, you know, the election now, the national election we're going to have in, in uh, November versus right. if Bernie were the candidate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, like, you know, I also get a little bit of um, flack for this. But like, here's the thing. If Bernie had won the nomination, the Democratic Party probably would have imploded uh, on itself because it's not strategically talented, as we have spent a, a, the first hour of this conversation uh, discussing the the Democratic Party has some strategic inequi- inadequacies, um, and you know one of it is message centralization. So this is what I think would have happened. We were already seeing it when he won Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, right? Um, well, you know, did well at least in those three contests, and it was looking like he was doing good and there wasn't really a viable alternative before Biden's, you know, strong performance in South Carolina and people were anticipating his nomination. The mainstream part of the Democratic Party was freaking out and they were um, positioning themselves against socialism. Right. So, like, let's say Bernie Sanders became the nominee. My modeling and my work anticipates a Democratic vote being rowed in one direction. All the rows, um, you know, oars are moving in one direction and they're moving. Um, the election is a referendum against Donald Trump. Under a Sanders nominee, you have your frontline Senate candidates like Mark Kelly in Arizona and uh, Sarah Gideon in Maine, um, you know, easily distracted into running two campaigns. They're running the campaign against Trump and they're running a campaign trying to distance themselves from socialism. And the GOP is so Mm -hmm. talented that they know the more they force these guys to talk about socialism, the less they're talking about Trump. It's a way less they're talking about Trump. Right. 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 So like they, in my opinion, um, so I actually had a uh, whole alternative forecast update written in case Sanders did become the nominee <laughs> and he and he might have been by plurality because I I was talking about okay Sanders could become the nominee without the black vote under this scenario Biden Buttigieg Klobuchar and Bloomberg four people are dividing the rest of the vote including the black vote Sanders keeps winning, you know, 15, 20 percent of the vote in these various states. There's no majority delegate winner. And he heads into the convention 
with a plurality lead. So he basically becomes the Democratic Party either has a plurality nomination going to Sanders or they have to take the nomination away from Sanders and it's a rebellion, right? Either yeah, way, terrible. that's a shit scenario, right? Uh, so that was the alternative that they were looking at. And I had a forecast written for that. And in that forecast, everything was moving back to toss up, basically, because I understood that the Democrat, the Democrats were going to splinter into chaos and the Republicans were going to move in like vultures. <laughs> and, well, let me, you know, yeah. l- l- let me let me push you on that a little bit, because uh, that sounds like the same thing that, you know, I, as a naive observer, thought about Trump in 2016, that, well, his election is going to split the party because his essential crudeness and crassness. I still saw the Republican Party as being uh, socially conservative in that, you know, the morally upright party, you know, the uh, uh, the party of, you know, language warning labels on rap CDs. I know that's Tipper Gore, who is a Democrat, but you know what I mean, right. uh, as, as being that sort of thing. And um, a lot of the way that the election went seemed to trend that way. I mean, you had people like Paul Ryan uh, running away from Trump, uh, especially after the Access Hollywood tape uh, and et cetera. And it really seemed like disaster until that final moment. I keep, I think all the time about like this one joke that Stephen Colbert made on his live election night broadcast when he was. Oh, no, maybe it was actually the next day. Um, but he said, you know, the the Demo- the Republicans were in an elevator that was like hurtling towards the bottom of the, uh, you know, the, the cables were cut and it was hurtling towards the bottom floor. And then the door opened into a candy shop where everything was free. Like it, it seemed as though the party was split in exactly that way. And then it turned out to be a massive success for them uh, because yeah. the voters actually wanted something different than all of the party elites wanted uh, in a way that, you know, almost everybody missed. Um, yeah. And that ended up like being a being a wave. And. You know, I had the thought plenty of times this last year, the same thing could be true of Bernie Sanders, and I'm not sure why I would think it isn't. So I'm curious what you say to that. Well, some key differences. Number one is that Trump was racking up clear electoral victories all the way through the primary. He wouldn't mm-hmm. have gone into the convention and have become the nominee as a as a plurality default winner. But that's because Republicans have the winner take all states, right? Isn't that a key difference? I mean, they have some. I mean, it's a hybrid system, right? But they did they okay. did change the system too to make it so that there are more winner take all states at the beginning so that uh, it'd be easier for the front runner to consolidate their victory after 2012 when it got mm. drowned out. And of course, that's what helped Trump win early. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's definitely a factor, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, he, when we think back to Trump's later primary states, we don't, I mean, we don't know because we're never going to get to see that scenario. But Trump, Trump was winning big. I mean, he was winning like 40 percent in New Hampshire, 45 percent. He at the later states, he was getting 60 percent of the vote. You know, I mean, I, do you think that do you see a scenario in which Sanders is winning, you know, the March 17th and March 20? third primaries with 50, 60%. I don't, I don't think the democratic electorate was, is, is as, so like in terms of like how the mass electorate is, I don't think the Democrats mm-hmm. were as quite as unified behind Sanders as the mass Republicans were around Trump. 
Okay. And right. another key difference is this. So at the end of the day, all that disunity at the elite level, the Republican candidates did some of them distance themselves from Trump personally. I mean, you got to remember, too, that like none of the Republican elites went to the convention. Right. Like, I mean, people forget about that. But like even John Kasich didn't go to his own state's like this, Ohio hosted the convention, he wouldn't go. Uh, people forget mm. now because, of course, the Republican Party is so allegiant to Trump. But it, back then, like, no, and they had to give it a speaking spot to Ted Cruz for a reason. Right. And Ted Cruz like, talked shit about yeah. Trump from the stage. Yeah. Because they, uh, and they had to give him that speaking role because they could not find like any credentialed human being in the Republican Party to come speak on behalf of Donald Trump, right? Yeah. I mean, this this time's going to be different, but like that convention, like it was very, very hard to fill those speaking roles for them, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, but so you're right. The elites were really, really divided. Um, and, but the public was really not. And I don't know that the public would have been as unified behind Sanders in this case, as the public would have been behind Trump. And when we think about what happened on Election Day, you know, 90 percent of Republicans cast ballots for Donald Trump. For Sanders to have a, ch a chance, you'd have to see 90 percent of Democrats do that. Um, I think that's achievable, definitely. Um, but, you know, what I said to you is that I would have been changing my forecast to toss up. Right. Mm -hmm. Because keep in mind, my forecast is, you know, the Democrats would win in 2020, right? It's a decisive victory for Democrats. Yeah. So, it, you know, basically what I'm telling you is under a Sanders nomination, I would have been moving from that certainty to a scenario in which I, I, I would not be able to say with certainty what the outcome would have been. Well, this has been really fan. I could talk to you about this for hours, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, we do, we do have to, we do have to bring it home here. I, I'd like to ask, you were talking about a hey, Twitter's not real life. I mean, that's a meme. We all know that, but it's often hard to remember it. You've talked about the different bubbles that we all live in. Uh, for folks listening who want a more clear-eyed view of what's happening in politics, uh, what do you suggest they do? What do you suggest they read? Uh, what do you suggest they think differently about? Uh, what do you suggest they take home with them from this? Well, I mean, sadly enough, I'm going to tell them to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I, I Go mean, ahead. I put, out, I put out content there all day, every day. So it's like a live blog for me. And so there's a lot of stuff you would see there that you would never see anywhere else. And the Twitter archive, you know, if you search my Twitter account, you'll find lots of cool threads about a lot of the topics that we talked about today, you know, um, ranging from the thing that we were just talking about, which was how would the Democratic Party have responded to a Sanders nomination, you know, especially, you know, its ability to row the boat in one direction, which would have been a referendum on Trump and not a referendum on socialism. I just think that would have been a major potential down uh, pitfall for them. Uh, but also a lot of the stuff mm -hmm. about messaging and, um, you know, how to not be an apologetic, apologetic Democrat. <laughs> um, but I also have a really cool analysis that I'd point people to that came out of the New Republic. It's called Hate is on the Ballot, and it pushes back quantitatively at this idea that the blue wave is actually a red wave powered by disaffected Republicans realigning away from Republicans in the suburbs 
That is not what power the blue wave. Um, there are some realigned Republicans in the suburbs, but the bigger story are these turnout uh, changes that I talked about with you. And, and people really should read that analysis. It's the most important thing I've written. I think it's really interesting because you, uh, you know, you've been having a very, I'm going to call it moderate realist view of the progressive movement in a way that I imagine progressives listening to this might be a little uh, uncomfortable with, if not irritated by, right? You're making arguments that, that I've often heard those folks be irritated by, but you're also making the turnout argument, which is one of the central progressive arguments that like appealing to that uh, you know, that white swing voter in the Midwest is not as important as getting the turnout up. Um, and so I I don't know, I find that way that you situate yourself uh, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just I just let the data tell me what's going on. And, you know, I don't I tell people yeah. this is what I tell people. You don't follow me or read my stuff to feel good. You <laughs> follow me and read my stuff. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that you can do to do that, right? God love the partisan media atmosphere. If you want to feel good, you can tap it in right into your veins every day and just go off to la la land. But if you want to be smarter sure. and you want to understand how shit works, then you should follow me. Hell yeah. And that's exactly the kind of person I love having on this show. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, that is it for my interview with Rachel Bittacoffer. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. That is it for us this week on Factually. I'd like to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our engineers, Brett Morris and Ryan Connor, uh, our researcher, Sam Roudman, Andrew WK for our theme song. Hey, you can check out my mailing list and the place where I formerly used to show my tour dates at adamconover.net. Follow me on social media anywhere you want at Adam Conover. And uh, we'll see you next time on Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.